Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Well, good evening, church. If you got your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 6. My name is Mike. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, and as Brad mentioned earlier, in 20 years of having the privilege of handling the Word of God here at this church, um, I have never spent more time preparing for a message. Uh, This has literally been about a three-month process for me of working through uh, what we're going to look at tonight. It's a heavy matter. As you remember in our journey through Joshua, we've seen the picture of our faithful God. And chapters one through five have been about this idea of before we're going to have conquest, we need to have consecration. Our hearts, our posture needs to be in the right place. And as we now turn a corner into chapter six, we're going to begin to talk about through chapter six through 12, the conquest of the land. And we are um, about to walk into Jericho and fight what is maybe the the most famous battle that we see amongst the Israelites uh, and walk into there. But before we do, uh, we need to deal with an issue, an issue that if, uh, if you've read through Joshua before is a bit of a troubling issue for Christians. I want you to look down at verse 21 just to get an idea of this issue that we're going to see all throughout uh, these six chapters that talk about the conquest of Jericho. Uh, This is what God commands regarding the people. He says in Joshua chapter 6 verse 21, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Uh, As I fast forward to chapter 11, you can just listen with me. It says, all the spoil of these cities, the cattle, the sons of Israel took as their plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. So we wrestle with this, I think, as Christians to say, how how do we reconcile this? Isn't Jesus the one who said, hey, you need to, to love your enemies? In fact, the the well-known atheist Richard Dawkins regarding this specific issue said this about this subject matter. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. So obviously you know where he stands. He says, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a lot of words and a pretty strong description of the God that we bow to and the God that we worship. But I think if we're honest, much is at stake. Uh, God, basically, by Dawkins and others, has been accused of being a moral monster based on the passages that we see. And, and much is at stake in God's reputation. Can we trust him? Is he good? Knowing the things that he's commanded, do these things violate his nature, his attributes, and his character? Uh, did God command the genocide of an entire people group and hence condone these atrocities? So our goal tonight really is to really understand those two words. What does it mean that God called his people to utterly destroy the people in the land that they are going to? And as you think about this, we're going to be kind of previewing a lot of different texts. We won't stay in Joshua, uh, but we're going to talk about kind of that subject matter. And really, it's that word in verse 21 that we see that's repeated all over, uh, all the way as early as Exodus, even in uh, all the way into Kings, that idea of utterly destroy. It's one word in the Hebrew. It's the word harem, and that's what we're going to discuss tonight. It's a word that's used 50 times in our Old Testament. And the conundrum with the word is it can mean kind of a number of things. It can mean to utterly destroy, as in to annihilate individuals 
individuals. It can mean to be under the ban, to place something aside, i.e. devoted to God. And how you choose to um, understand this word begins to help us understand kind of what side of the issue or how you frame what God is asking this to do. And that really is our task. What does God mean when he says, I want you to go into the land and utterly destroy the people that are there? Now, to understand first what God has asked, we need to actually understand who's in the land. We've talked a lot about um, the iniquity of the Ammonites, the, um, the Canaanites that are living in the land. But I want you to turn with me back to your left to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18. Go to the place where Bible study reading plans go to die. Uh, Leviticus 18, I imagine you probably spent not a lot of time here, nor have I, in terms of uh, our daily devotions. But what God is describing is, is, is a, um, an idea of what he wants the people of God to, to look like as they are in the land. And he's going to mention the people that are currently there, the Canaanites, they are, um, they are guilty of two pretty significant areas, moral corruption and child sacrifice. And the first way that this moral corruption shows up in the Canaanites' life, again, the people in the land that God is calling the Israelites to go battle with, uh, they fell in the area of sexuality. Look at uh, Leviticus 18, verses 2 and 3 with me. To speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. God's saying the people in the land are living apart from me, not according to my design, so I don't want you to mimic the things that they do. And now God is going to go into pretty significant detail describing exactly that. And this, to be frank, is a little bit uncomfortable. He says now in verse six, skip down there with me. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. This phrase, uncovered nakedness, is, is used 17 times here in Leviticus chapter 18. It basically means to have sexual relationships with another person. In fact, if you're reading out of an NIV, it basically says that. You can only have sex with these people. And then God now is going to set proper sexual boundaries based on his design here in verse 7. I want you to notice the first. He says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. So the nakedness of your father is basically saying the nakedness that belongs to your father is your mother. You do not have sex with your mother. And this pattern continues in verse eight. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So your stepmom or potentially a second wife. That is his nakedness to uncover. You do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife being your stepmother. Now, if I was to read through all these verses, let me summarize where God goes with this in the, the list of things that he's going to say. In verse 9, he will say, you do not have sex with your sister or your half-sister or your stepsister. In verse 10, your granddaughter. In verse 12 through 14, your aunt, uh, whether she is by blood or by marriage. That is your uncle's nakedness, so to speak. In verse 15, your daughter-in-law. In verse 16, your brother's wife or your sister-in-law. Verse 18, your wife's sister. In verse 20, your neighbor's wife, i.e. adultery. In verse 22, you don't lie with a man as you lie with a woman. That is homosexuality. That is forbidden. And in verse 23, in case it hadn't gotten tough enough, God says in verse 23, also you shall not have intercourse with an animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Now you're probably asking the question like, really? Like, God, did we really need to write these things down? 
Are these not obvious to us that these are outside the, the bounds of what is normative and good sexually? But I want you to notice specifically what God says regarding all of these sins. Look at verse 27 as he summarizes everything that he said about proper sexual relationships. He says, for the men of the land who have been in there before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. This isn't an idea. God is not saying this potentially could happen. He's saying in the land currently, the Canaanites who live there, they are guilty of all of these abominations. So their moral corruption has shown itself specifically in the area of a sexual deviance. But it doesn't end there. I want you to look at verse 21, and we're going to see this second issue, this issue of child sacrifice. He says to the Israelites, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. You shall not, sorry, you shall, uh, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. As you remember from our study through uh, the book of Joshua, Molech is one of the gods of the Canaanites. Uh, Chemosh and Milcom were other similar gods, but they were all worshiped through child sacrifice, where you would take an infant or a young child and you would lay them on the burning arms of this God in order to appease that God to bring you rain or um, a productive harvest or whatever it may be. They were all worshiped by child sacrifice sacrifice. And in Deuteronomy, God mentions this about this practice. He says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their, in their land, beware that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have destro been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? that I may do likewise. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For even they burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So this land is full of a deviance sexually in, in this moral area, but also through a group of people that are practicing child sacrifice. In the verse we just read in verse 27 about the people of the land practicing all of these things certainly holds true to this as well. They have done all of these abominations. God is saying in a sense, the people that are there, their sin knows no bounds. As we look back on Genesis chapter 15 and remember the idea of the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, God is saying in Abraham's day, when he talked about the people that were living in the land, they have now been there for 600 years since Abraham's time. They have not repented. They have not come to a conviction over their sin. They have not turned to the Lord. Their sin has only gotten worse because the leash is off. They are unrestrained in their ability to do evil. In Romans chapter one says, in our conscience, we don't even need God's word to tell us this is a violation of what is normative and what is natural. They should know better. So this is the condition of the people that are currently in the land that God is saying, I want you to utterly destroy. Now, interesting side note. I want you to notice that God says there are two characteristics of a society that grieve his heart beyond measure. The killing of innocent children who have no voice in extreme sexual deviance from God's standard. 
It's an interesting sermon for a different day, but it's convicting maybe just to think about where we are as a society in those areas. But this was the warning to Israel on the front side of all of what they're about to do. God wants to keep Israel from sexual deviance and child sacrifice. So they are to eradicate their morality and they are to eradicate their gods. And again, how Israel understood these commands is what's at the center of, again, this debate. So I wanna ask the question now, what does God mean by what he commanded saying to go in and utterly destroy now these people? I want to give you three kind of primary views on this text that we're about to read and the text that we're going to see through these next chapters as we journey through kind of the conquest portion of the Old Testament, okay? The first of these three is called radical discontinuity. It's basically the idea that the Old Testament God of wrath has nothing to do with the New Testament God of Jesus. That is one of the views that, and I say this loosely, falls underneath kind of Christianity. Uh, But the idea is that basically they think God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament. He's a God of love and grace in the New Testament, that he hit puberty somewhere in between and he grew up and he matured and he is no longer that guy. Uh, And they say, hey, we see God fully revealed in Jesus. So if we look to Jesus as our model, then we can properly understand God. So what they would surmise underneath this idea is that uh, Joshua simply misunderstood God and his commands or the Old Testament authors attributed to God what should have been attributed to Satan. So they say there is absolutely no way that the God that we know and worship as Christians could ever command such a thing. Now, the pros of this side, if there are any, is that they're at least trying to make an attempt to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire Bible, which we would say in our camp, 100%. He is and he, he absolutely is. Uh, And they make an attempt to kind of get God off the hook, right? To make us feel better. But the problem with this view is it divorces your Old Testament from your new. Those in this camp completely reject biblical inerrancy and would just as soon rip out vast portions of their Old Testament to say that cannot be true. So this view, though held by Christians, by the way, is almost identical to someone like Richard Dawkins, the prominent prominent atheist. Uh, Their conclusions, the way they get there are different, but their end conclusion on who God is, is basically the same. If that is who God is, he is evil, he is not to be worshiped, and he is terrible. The problem, by the way, with this view, it is simply a recycled first century heresy that was rightly condemned by the church in the first century when they divorced the Old Testament and New Testament gods. And they completely ignore uh, that the fact that, as we saw last week in Joshua chapter 5, it's actually Jesus, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, who is leading his people into this battle. They ignore texts like Revelation 19, where we see Jesus returning as a warrior, leading his people into the land. They dismiss all of those things, and they simply refuse to believe that. Jesus himself, by the way, says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will see, not see life, but will see the wrath of God abiding on him. So even Jesus recognizes that there is a wrathful side of the Father that will be one day displayed. So this view, uh, in my mind's eye, is simply anti Christian. It falls outside of the circle of orthodoxy for thousands of years now. It has been rightly condemned uh, and it is wrong to believe that. So that view uh, we would cast aside and say that is not one that we can hold to. The next two that I want to share with you, I would say are both inside the circle. 
These are both uh, men and women who hold to the, the same attributes of God, his character and his nature. They have a high view of the Bible, a high view of who God is, but they differ on how they understand this text. But in terms of um, their view of God, their love of the Lord, and the things that we would say are, are consistent with our doctrinal statement here at the well, they would agree with all of those. So the second we'll call the traditional view. This is what I learned in seminary. It's what I grew up understanding. Great men and women certainly land here. The argument is that this word harem, this idea of utterly destroy, is a commandment from God regarding the genocide of the, of the Canaanites. And because God's heart is to protect his people, and he is trying to get rid of the moral corruption in the land, that God is right, and he is good and holy to command such a thing. If those nations remain there, Israel is going to worship their gods and ultimately uh, take upon those uh, moral qualities that they have. So these commands to kill people are primarily about the eradication of false gods in the land and the morality that came with them. God takes no delight in the death of the individuals that he is calling to annihilate, so to speak. He's bringing judgment on this sin. But the idea is in this camp, this genocide is not intrinsically evil because a holy and good God commands it. And he asks his people to do certainly hard things. But coming from a holy and perfect God, it is not evil in and of itself. Now the pros of this view, again, is a strong adherence to the word of God, a high view of, of God and all his, his attributes. He's protecting his people from evil. Uh, all of those things are certainly true. What I'm curious about regarding this view specifically are two things. Number one is this, Joshua is commanded both to utterly destroy the people in the land, but he's also called to dispossess them. Listen to Numbers, verse chapter 33, that talks about this before Joshua gets into the land. God says, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy their figured stones, destroy their molten images, demolish all of their high places, and you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. So there's these two simultaneous categories of language that God uses to describe what the Israelites are to do. I want you to utterly destroy them and I want you to dispossess them which raises a question in our mind. If everybody in the land has been utterly destroyed, i.e. annihilated, then there is nobody to dispossess. Are you tracking with me? So maybe uh, utterly destroyed means something other than completely annihilating everybody in the land. Secondly, I wonder, God actually assumes that these people are still around after they have been utterly destroyed. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses one and following. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it, seven nations greater than you and stronger than you, and he lists all of these nations that are going to be in there. And he says, when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. Same word we've seen before. And then he goes on to say, you shall make no covenant with them and you shall show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So God says in, these, in, the, in the same verse in Deuteronomy, I want you to utterly destroy these people, but also don't give your kids to their wives in intermarriage. The question then remains, how could that be done? If utterly destroy means completely annihilate everybody in the land, then there's nobody left to give your sons and daughters to, to intermarry. So how do we make sense of these two ideas? of dispossess uh, or to evict is maybe another way to say it and utterly destroy these 
uh, these people that are there. And by the way, the same is true in the war accounts that we see in Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, as we get there, we're going to see that Israel uh, is told um, in the scriptures that they left no survivors when they defeated cities like Hebron and Debir. They utterly destroyed all of these cities. But then in Joshua 15, a couple chapters later, it says that there are towns, in these specific towns, the Canaanites are still living in them after they have been utterly destroyed. How are those two go together? So I wonder if utterly destroy seems to mean maybe something other than total annihilation. If there is room in the text to show that. And that brings us now to our third and final view. So we'll call this one the modified traditional view. Again, both in the circle, whether you're uh, talking about the traditional view or the modified traditional, it holds to all the same views of God that the previous view did. Uh, The same desire to rightly divide the word of truth in scripture. But their argument is this, that Joshua, the book of Joshua, fits into other ancient Near Eastern battle accounts that use hyperbole as part of the normative narrative style. Now, uh, this idea of of hyperbole being part of the war language as we read all over ancient Near Eastern literature was certainly true. Uh, The premise is simply understanding how do we unpack that? Uh, The other day I walked downstairs and my daughter was talking to, uh, I think it was my wife, about an upcoming sporting event and she said, oh, we're going to annihilate them. And I thought nothing of it, right? I, I walked out of the room, I didn't stop to my daughter and say, wait a second. Uh, sweetheart, the, the commandments of God say do not kill, right? You can't do that. Uh, I understood the context. I understood she was speaking hyperbolically. She wasn't literally saying that this team is going to murder this team. She's just saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to crush them in this, this competition. Well, Scripture actually does this as well. Think about Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Uh, I can't find one commentator who says, you know what Jesus is actually saying? He's saying, cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. That Jesus is speaking hyperbolically about an issue to help us understand the weight and the gravity of getting into his kingdom. God does this, by the way, speaking with Abraham. He says in Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 17, I will indeed greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. This is clearly hyperbolic language. There are believed on this earth to be uh, 7.5 sextillion grains of sand. I don't even know what that number is. It is a 75 followed by 17 zeros. The current population of our earth is 7.9 billion people. Uh, God is not saying uh, your descendants, Abraham, are going to be 7.5 sextillion people. He's speaking hyperbolically. By the way, this same idea happens in the book of Joshua in the war accounts. We are told of the enemies of Israel that they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Again, God is not saying there are a gazillion of these individuals. He is speaking about the nations that are coming to fight them, that they are overwhelming in the amount of people that they have. So this hyperbolic language is used uh, in Joshua and in other places in Scripture by Jesus, by God, uh, to describe battles, and that certainly is normative. So the, the upside of this account, in my mind's eye, is that it takes both the idea of utterly destroy and drive out, and it understands how those two texts 
can exist together. One commentator said it like this. It is completely misleading to characterize God's command to Israel to commit genocide. Rather, it was first and foremost a command to drive out the tribes of the land and to occupy it. Only those who remained behind were utterly exterminated. So in this view, their idea of harem is this idea of they have been given drastic marching orders to come do battle on these cities. And as we think about these cities, as you think about Jericho and these other cities that we're about to encounter, these are fortified military locations. These are not places that have elementary schools and hospitals and those sorts of things in them. These are uh, men primarily that are there to fight. There certainly would have been families as well, men and women. So we're not saying in, in these battles that men and women and children did not die. What we're saying is the primary uh, view of God in the midst of this is to drive out first and then those that remain, those that dig in, those that will not flee, those people were certainly put to the sword. So the primary language here by God actually is drive out, not totally kill. In fact, if you were to stack all the, the verses together that say drive out or dispossess or evict verse um, totally annihilate, you would see a three to one comparison in favor of the text that tell the Israelites, you shall drive them out. Now God certainly tells them to utterly destroy as well, but it's three to one in favor of the idea of driving these people out. So what I think this view does is it shows God's intended purpose regarding the Canaanites was to drive them out of the land, not to necessarily utterly annihilate every individual. By the way, it's interesting to me in scripture that we see a certain king interpret this idea the exact same way. If you know of a king by the name of Josiah, years after the events that we're reading, one of the godliest kings in all of the nation that comes later on, it says that he recovers the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, where we just read about this idea of driving these people out. And it says in Deuteronomy specifically, regarding the people in the land, the same stuff we just read, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim or their false gods, and burn their graven images with fire. As you read about what Josiah does after he recovers the law, he checks every one of those boxes. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go annihilate the people that are in the land. He removes their worship and their false morality, their false sexuality, and he evicts them in a sense from the land by ridding themselves of their worship practices. So Josiah himself, as he read probably Deuteronomy chapter seven and other texts, that is how he chose to interpret these commands from God. So utterly destroyed then is not about destroying the Canaanites, but rather destroying their religious and moral influence. This view gets here by driving out the people uh, first and then destroying those that would remain. The traditional view gets here by exterminating the people and thereby their morality and their gods. And again, both views are views that are trying to hold a high and lofty view of God and the Bible. And the reason that God commands this is because God created us and obviously the Israelites to be image bearers, to walk in his image, to be with him according to his design. And by the way, so we can just understand the gravity of this, in just a couple hundred years after Joshua's day, Israel failed miserably at this. Listen to this in Judges chapter 10. It says, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served, listen to this, 
the Baals, the Asherah, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, seven different gods. They forsook the Lord and did not serve them. Those gods would have included Chemosh and Molech and Milcom, the same gods that were used to offer child sacrifice to. And this led to a corruption in the hearts of the people. Psalm 106 says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices, served their idols, which became a snare to them, and they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. This is the people of God. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 32, they built high places for Baal, one of these gods, in the valley of Beth Hinnom, and to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire of Molech. In just a couple hundred years, Israel is going to be morally indistinguishable from the Canaanites that are currently living in the land. God says this is a huge deal. We have to remove these people. It is a sad, sad state of affairs. And ultimately what God does is exactly uh, to them what he's commanding of, the, Israel, of the, uh, the Canaanites. He says, I'm going to evict you from this land. I am going to remove you. It's going to spew you out are the terms that are used in Leviticus. Just as it spewed out the people that lived before you, if you're going to practice these things the way that they did, we are going to spew you out as well. So whether you hold to view two, a traditional view, or view three, kind of a modified traditional, uh, I want to maybe mention three maybe concluding remarks as we think about this idea uh, today, as we think about this idea of harem and holy war, as maybe others have called it. Number one, as we think about this concept today, uh, it is certainly not valid today. Whatever harem is, whatever utterly destroy means, it is not something that is still around today. Uh, one of my favorite commentators, Eugene Merrill, says this policy was enacted for a unique situation directed against a certain people and in line with the character of God himself, a policy whose design is beyond human comprehension, but one that is not for any reason unjust or immoral. Those very limitations preclude any possible justification for modern genocide for any reason. Amen to that. There have been Christians throughout the years who have taken verses like this and said, we need to go have the crusades. We need to go kill the enemies of God. There have been extremists that have stood outside abortion clinic, clinics spewing hate, even bombing clinics, saying that we need to put down and annihilate people that are anti-God. That is not seen anywhere in the text. So whatever that may be, whatever harem is defined as, uh, God is not honored and does not desire to see that in any way uh, used today as some type of uh, sword for the church to execute their, their vengeance on people they dislike. That is inconsistent with what we see in scripture. So uh, number one, holy war is not around today. Secondly, we must hold to all the qualities and attributes of God and his word. So regardless of where you stand in, in, in the circle, right? View number one is outside the circle, that is outside the camp of Christianity. That is not something that Orthodox Christians will hold to. But whether you hold to two or three, a traditionalist or a modified traditionalist view, we need to acknowledge that God is holy. He is loving he is good, he is righteous, he is just, he is jealous for his people, and he is also wrathful. 
We must reject any view of God that does not hold to this, that somehow accuses God of injustice for what he is doing. Isaiah chapter 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. We must not compromise the authority of God's word or his attributes as we land in this issue. And then lastly, I would say this. God is the only one who has the right to judge. Both in that day as he uh, commanded his people to utterly destroy and dispossess the people that were in the land because he is holy and we are not. And God's holiness is so much more significant than we imagine and therefore our sin is so much more significant than most of us can imagine because sin is a violation against God's holiness. If people were innocent, then maybe we could accuse God of of some sort of injustice, but that is simply not the case. The Bible is very clear uh, that God is 100% right to call sin, sin. So as we think about the land, this is not about ethnicity. This is not about race. This is not about a land grab. This is about a holy God executing his wrath on sin. And that's uh, a key understanding that we would uh, need to get there. Part of, by the way, the good news of the gospel is that God will indeed judge sin. Psalm 7 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine in retribution. Nahum chapter 1 says, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. God will right wrongs. Sin causes destruction to people and to relationships, and he will execute his wrath on that sin. Make no mistake about it. God says in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is both loving and just. Those are qualities that are true of him. And like gravity, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not, it is true. So I want to maybe lovingly offer a caution to us. Um, This pushback in this area, as I've been reading and studying, has come to a, a climax in a lot of ways in this specific generation that we are holding God uh, accountable for what he is doing. This idea that we are going to put ourselves in a seat over God and say, how dare you? Uh, this generation, maybe unlike others before it, uh, believes that that is okay and true. Um, I want to caution us maybe that those, kind of like Richard Dawkins has done, that would accuse God of being a moral monster. Uh, we see that because we look back on some human institutions and say, slavery is wrong. We need to fix that. Women not having the right to vote is wrong. We need to correct that. So certainly the same is true with God because he was ancient. We need to kind of course correct our God as well. Uh, Job is told in chapter 38 by the Lord, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God says to him, you have no idea what you were talking about. God says from Paul's hand in Romans chapter 9, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump, 
one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. God is God, and he can choose to be God because of his nature and his character, and what he chooses to do uh, is outside of our judgment, and we trust his nature and his character in texts like these when they are maybe hard to understand. But there's a certain arrogance, certainly, that is there uh, when we see uh, our role is to put ourselves over God and to judge him. And by the way, throughout church history, this really has not been an issue, this specific issue. Jesus, by the way, never took time to correct it. He didn't ever go back and say, oh, yeah, by the way, my father, crazy. Um, everything that you see from him in the Old Testament, I need to fix that. He says, no, I'm the embodiment of all that he is. I am God in the flesh. I came to fulfill my father's will. And in some ways, we, we have this idea of like we've walked in and seen a 30-second preview to a movie and then say, oh, yeah, I know how it all ends. And I'm going to ex exercise my judgment over this two-and-a-half-hour affair, having no idea all that is going on. Our perspective is limited. Our knowledge is limited. God is holy and is outside of time and space. So in moments like these, I want to commend us as believers to, to trust the nature and character of God when things don't make sense. God says in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And by the way, not only does God judge sin in Joshua's day, he will do it again in the future. One of my commentators that I came across said the war against the Canaanites was simply an earlier phase of battle that comes to its climax on the cross and its completion at the final judgment. Jesus fought against the spiritual powers and authorities on the cross, and he will finally put down all his enemies, both spiritual and physical, when he returns. We saw an incredible picture of this last week in Revelation 19 and 20 as Brad walked us through that. Not of the suffering servant, but as the conquering king who comes back with a sword in his hand to deal with sin, to throw Satan into the lake of fire. And as God has been patient with the sin of the Amorites in Joshua's day, he is doing that in our day as well. Do not mistake the fact that his patience is somehow weakness. The judgment that we're going to see from a holy God on sin is coming one day. Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And the idea is today we are all, again, under sin. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there will be a day that God is going to return and he is going to execute his wrath on all of sin. But the beauty of our God, though he is loving and wrathful, is that he has taken upon that wrath himself. He must, in his justice, judge rightly and wholly sin. And the way that he did that was taking all of that wrath, all of that anger to the destructiveness of sin, and instead of giving that to us, he placed that upon his son on the cross. And in the future, there will be a day where our sin is going to be judged, and God's going to either say it was paid for, it is finished, because you have trusted in the provision of Christ as Rahab did years ago, as many in the Old Testament saw this wrath of God that was coming and said, I need to come underneath the protection that you have provided, or there will be those that have no protection from that wrath. Friends, the beauty of the gospel is that God will judge sin. We want that in our lives, but we also need to understand we, me, all of us are tainted by sin. 
And our holy God has to execute his judgment on those things. And today we see that ultimately will come. But God in the person of Christ and his son has taken that wrath upon himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, as we look at a very difficult subject tonight, I pray that maybe our hearts are inclined to remember that, that we serve a good and gracious and loving God that certainly asks to do hard things and maybe even things that we don't understand, but he is still holy and he is still good and he is still trustworthy and he has taken the wrath um, that he must execute on sin upon his son and we can rejoice in that. Friends, that is the gospel. And if you're new to church, if you're new to the well, uh, there is no greater delight that we have as a church to introduce you to that person in Jesus who laid his life down and took upon that wrath that we may find life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even the hard parts of Scripture, parts that, Father, if I'm honest, I'd rather avoid. But, Lord, they tell us so much about who you are. And, Father, we choose in these moments to trust you. And we see good evidence here that you are consistently um, about love and graciousness and forgiveness and all of those things. And yet we also see there is another side to who you are that is holy and that will judge sin. So, Father, would we find ourselves in places of trust with you? Father, would you help us to uh, be honest about our own sin that needs to be judged and the provision that you have made for that in your son? And Father, we thank you that that is true, and you've been so good to us to provide that. Thank you for our hero, Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.